This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting-edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. This is Docera Digest and I am Dr. Kaiser Frank. Welcome to our third installment in our series on stress and anxiety. Today we're going to be talking about the chronic hidden stealth infections and their effect on the body and how they can cause additional types of stress and can become more of an issue due to the stresses in our life that wear us down and make life much harder, giving rise to these infections and these diseases going unchecked and becoming major issues and debilitators in our life. So I'm going to start off here with Lyme disease, which is a tick-borne illness that can cause a debilitating issue in some individuals, and in some others, it just be, might be a little more mild with no or little symptoms. I don't want to spend too much time going over Lyme disease here. We have a six-part series. We'll have a link to that in the uh, below. So please click on that if you're interested in more information on Lyme disease, where we go through in a lot of depth on that. So today I just want to talk about Lyme disease, how stress causes flare-ups, and what to do and how to recognize these things and how to deal with that. So Lyme disease can uh, cause stress in the body, or stress can cause Lyme disease to be worse. So it's kind of a vicious cycle, which Dr. K is going to talk about later on here. So many times we see tremendous progress in individuals with Lyme disease, and then all of a sudden we have a flare-up. Something kicks up. These old symptoms start rising up, and they fall back to some of the old challenges. So here's how you know if you have Lyme disease. Uh, some of the neurological things that you might notice are an increase in fatigue, tiredness during the day, sleepless at night, which means you're kind of wired and tired, as we call it. You wake up in a puddle of sweat from detoxifying all night long. You have issues with what we call brain fog, which is being able to concentrate and be able to have good memory recall. So ex extreme sensitivities um, due to bright lights, heat, cold, or noise, which can come from the inflammation of the nervous system. Muscle stiffness, mood changes, you might become a little more irritable. Poor quality of sleep, not waking up refreshed, dizziness and vertigo, numbness and tingling in the hands and feet, widespread muscle pain, blurred vision, and just general body pain. So what triggers a flare-up? So when dealing with a flare-up, we need to see what, is what has changed to allow the individual to be triggered. So we're doing fine, something went wrong, something allowed something to set off a chain reaction in which we're starting to deal with these things again. So some of these common things that we see in our investigation into this issue is emotional stress. People going through a divorce, a death in the family, accidents, uh, physical stress in the body, surgery, physical harm, concussions, life stress, or stressful events. Other things that we see are immune stress. So infections, cold, viral illnesses, chronic infections, stress of daily life and your obligations lead to exhaustion. Dietary stress. So are you putting too much sugar and alcohol into your system, creating more issue? 
hormonal stress, such as menstrual. So a lot of people see flare-ups during, especially women, <laughs> during the menstrual time. Uh, lack of sleep, traveling, or changes in your normal schedule might upset and cause a flare-up or changes in your treatment. So how do we prevent this? So to lessen the effect of Lyme disease and treating it appropriately, several things need to be addressed. So treat your Lyme disease appropriately, finding a way to treat it without causing additional stress to the body, or address the issues with the treatment that arise and lessen the impact of the treatment side effects. So in our office, we do things pretty natural. We don't see a lot of Herxheimer reactions. We don't see a lot of that. But a lot of people are doing other treatments, going through a different course of treatment. We may see them doing antibiotics, things like that, that may actually increase stress in the body. And that's why we start getting Herxheimer reactions and things like that because of toxicity. So sometimes we have people come in that are doing that and we have to help them detoxify the body appropriately. So their course of treatment, currently using works much better. So we need to reduce as much of your stress as possible. So get enough rest and sleep. Stay away from foods that make you feel worse, including the alcohol and the processed sugars. Learn to pace yourself to avoid doing too much when you aren't feeling well. So keep up your health, stay hydrated, work with your doctor or find a doctor that you can work with who will help you get your symptoms under control. So mental outlook is a, is a big thing we really need to work on here. So you need to be thinking positive while you're going through this. I know it's hard because there's so much almost PTSD from going through it. And when this symptoms start coming back and you're doing so well, you feel like you're crashing again and you can lose hope very quickly. So do not fall into despair. Okay. Focus on the positive things. Focus on where you need to go. So try focusing on the things that you can do rather than those you can't. And you might need to find a mental health provider or counselor, somebody to help you work through some of these different thought processes. So many things that we, I just went over are arising from Lyme disease and its effect on the body. Many of these things are in response to the body not being able to effectively deal with Lyme disease to additional challenges, its systems becoming overwhelmed. Other additional infections that we see with this are co-infections from Babesia and Bartonella as well as several viruses that can also come into play when we're dealing with Lyme disease, which complicates the healing aspect. Another major issue we find very commonly Lyme disease and its cohorts is parasite infections, which may be a big part of dealing with the monthly flare-ups with the full moon. Coming up to the full moon, we'll see the immune system start to tank a little bit with the parasites uh, wearing out the immune system and the Lyme disease sometimes flares up. So Dr. Ben's going to dive deeper into the parasites here. We have Dr. Craig, who's going to talk about how mold infections and toxins can cause additional stresses in our life and also uh, cause Lyme disease to become more of an issue. So that being said, Dr. Craig. Thanks, Dr. Kyson. So in 2007, a study was done at Brown University with almost 6,000 people that showed a significant link between mold exposure and anxiety and depression. So similar to what Dr. Kyson said, a lot of this is just going to be reviewed. There's going to be a lot of overlap. Um, we have a mold series as well. I really encourage you to listen to what I want to dive in today is what actually happens when we're exposed to mold and how exactly does that impact stress and anxiety? So first mold produces byproducts called MVCs, which is microbial volatile organic compounds, which is versus what are called volatile organic compounds, which actually come from man-made chemicals. It also produces spores and mycotoxins. That sounds stressful. What's that? That sounds stressful. Exactly. One of the things I also want to kind of recommend people do is uh, make sure and watch our air quality episode because Mike Mead goes really in depth with spores in the air and how they mm -hmm. get moved around. And it's a, an important component to this as well. 
What's also interesting too is you, when these spores are broken down, you also have the skeletal elements of their breakdown and metabolites from this as well that are also a factor. So what's interesting is the mold spore is not necessary actually to trigger mold illness. Mycotoxins, MVOCs are small enough to bypass through most materials, including the brain, blood-brain barrier, which we've talked about, Dr. Ben. Mm -hmm. In fact, what I found interesting in the conversation we had, you were talking about how certain fungus can actually bore through or burrow through the blood-brain barrier, and then mold will actually follow them in, and the mycotoxins come in very easily. So it's, but it's actually the mycotoxins and these MVCs, these small things that are primary triggers in mold illness. As I said, also the skeletal elements and metabolites, interestingly, they can also be causing the symptoms of mold illness. So the typical method we think of isn't always the exact cause. <clears throat> so what we know is research shows us that mold triggered immune activation is the primary cause of the symptoms in the brain of the body and it's its inflammatory effects. It's really what we're dealing with. So that's kind of where I want to focus my attention, especially as it, how it affects the brain. This inflammation causes three primary effects. First, we get neurologic damage or lesions within the brain, both in the gray matter and the white matter. And this directly affects and impedes first the frontal cortex, which is involved in impulse control, memory, problem solving, sexual behavior, socialization, and spontaneity. And then also the hippocampus, which is also involved in memory, in learning, and sleep-wake cycles. So the second thing is it impairs neurotransmitter production and also the function of the neurotransmitters, especially dopamine, which directly leads to anxiety and depression. And this occurs through that slow neurological damage that occurs. And then the final thing that mold inflammation does is it prevents neurogenesis, which is the formation of ner ner new nerves, <laughs> or basically repair. So as I was studying this, what one of the things that was mentioned I find interesting is that means some people seeking men help for mental illness really are dealing with a mold issue, not a mental health illness. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of important as we talk about this. And this is one of the big things we do in our office is we really want to get at what is actually the root cause. Is it chemical? Is it physical? Is it mental, emotional? What actually is the cause? Right. Not just what are the symptoms, symptoms leading us to. In fact, I'm going to give you an example here in just a minute of uh, one this week that really kind of pointed to that. One other aspect I want to touch on real quick here is DNA vulnerability. About 25% of people living have a uh, genetic predisposition to mold exposure, which means even small amounts of mold exposure can set them off, mm -hmm. which is why you can have two people living in the same household, same situation, and vastly different experiences. Mm -hmm. The other thing I want to touch on that I thought was interesting is to think about the indirect effects on stress and anxiety. Because we got the direct effects of how mold is affecting the brain itself, but what about the indirect effects? The first one is misdiagnosis. If you're dealing with a mold illness, but you haven't been diagnosed with that, you're trying to figure out what's causing this, that is can create that in and of itself can create stress and anxiety. When you don't know what you're dealing with, it's hard to feel at ease. Then you get some of the other reactions like asthma, wheezing, allergy reactions in the sinuses and, and lungs, skin reactions, sleep disorders, nerve damage, sensitivity to pain, and memory loss. All of those are going to weigh on us and be stressful to us. So even though it's not directly causing the stress and anxiety, the symptoms themselves are going to cause or amplify or create the stress and anxiety. So here's my example. I had someone in this week. Their primary symptom was they were having um, increased heart rate and 
pounding in their chest with that you know, a very um, intense heart rate. And so we got to talking and I, I knew there were some stress factors. And so we're going to go into stress and mental, emotional stuff, right? No, he tested the parasites. Parasites was his primary factor that was leading to the symptoms he was dealing with. And so with that, I'll let you talk about parasites. Wow. <clears throat> Good crossbow there, Doc C. <laughs> so before anybody really freaks out, because we talk about this subject, I, I just want everybody to realize we did a whole series on this. And it's important you go back and listen to that because I'm going to talk about a lot of things that are referenced or I'm going to reference to a lot of things we're talking about there. Um, and, and I guess I want you to realize that there is some critical things as I go through this. And we're going to talk about the significance of those because they are affecting people more than what we realize, right? So, ooh, the yucky, the world, the stuff that we own, the yucky poo, disgusting thing of parasites. Wow. Hard to think about that we actually have these bugs or these worms or these whatever you want to call them living in us. But yet, it's true. The world today is experiencing a global parasitical issue. So let me remind everyone, first of all, <clears throat> excuse me, the parasites are not a disease but they can spread or cause diseases that can be fatal. And worldwide, more people die every year from parasite-related problems than any other disease or condition. And yes, that includes North America. Now, we may not have a death diagnosis of parasites, but it caused the disease that allowed for the death to ensue. Many parasitic infections are treatable and preventable if we catch them and even eradicate them. And parasitical stress is something we all have to deal with. So then what is parasitical stress? The parasite stress hypothesis predicts that individuals dealing with a parasitical infection will show some of the following. A lower than normal type of openness, meaning that they're often seen as being rigid and close-minded. A lesser amount of agreeableness, meaning they put their needs first. And a low level of extroversion, meaning that they tend to be fairly independent and do not need a lot of admiration or recognition from others in order to feel satisfied. And they also tend to have a higher level of conscientiousness, which means that they are highly organized, self-disciplined, and detail-orientated. Now, before you say, hey, that sounds a lot like me or somebody I know, let me assure you that not, ev not everyone that has this type of personality trait is infected with parasites. But how would you know? The other issue is that the more stress you are experiencing, and even the more long-term type of chronic stress you live under, the more that will also affect your immune system and how it functions, therefore making individuals more susceptible to a parasitical infection. Then the parasites can interact in addition to or synergistically with other stressors or stress factors or triggers, thus fueling the stress cycle, anxiety, and anxiousness. So then is anxiety a symptom of parasites? Parasite symptoms in humans, such as sleeping irregularities, skin irritation, mood changes, and muscle pain, can all be caused by the level, I mean, caused by the toxins released by the parasites into our bloodstream. These toxins then can cause anxiety, which then tends to manifest itself in irregular sleeping patterns and or teeth grinding or even drooling. Well, then you might be wondering how the parasite actually causes stress. Let me answer that for you. Once parasites get into your body, they have three specific desires. Number one, they need to survive to get to their desired location. Number two, they need to eat either on the food that you eat or on the cells and tissues inside of you. And three, they need to produce or reproduce as fast and as often as they can. Since most of the parasites want to live in your gut, that's where they will generally be traveling to. 
no matter if you inhale them, swallow them, or if they even crawl in through your skin. That's kind of rare or weird, but those happen. Hookworm. Hookworm. Once they're in there, they'll begin to set up their feeding area. Then they'll begin to eat the food that you are eating. Now, this will produce either an aggravative reaction, which means they will send you signals through special toxins that this food is bad, yuck, don't eat it, which will produce a sort of food allergy reaction, make you not want to eat that food again. Or the food that you eat causes an excitable reaction, which then they will send out another toxin that makes you want to eat more of this type of food, which will cause overeating and or even overindulgence. Here you're actually, they are wanting to actually feed them and not you. If neither of these two reactions work, then they will begin to eat our own internal cells and tissues, as well as our internal fluids and even our blood. This will cause some heavy duty mycotoxins that will stimulate our inflammatory and or immune systems. With a prolonged effect of this, it will begin to weaken our defense systems and eventually begin the cycle of internal stress on a lot of our symptoms. They prefer this approach because as you are fighting all these other reactions, as it will enhance their survivability and their reproduction, which just further weakens our resistance. Once it has been established, they will begin to release other mycotoxins that will, I'm going to get this out. This is fun. It will manipulate our hormones as well as our neurotransmitters that control the total functionality of our body. All this will ensure that they will not only, the parasite will not only survive, but that they will be very little resistance to them thriving. You often hear us doctors refer to helping you and your body either get ready for war or to engage in the war that is already in your body. This war that we refer to is really a chemical war, which is one of the worst types of wars that you can have. The toxins and the mycotoxins that the parasites release will overwhelm our inflammatory pathways that are responsible to help detoxify us. This will eventually lead to an overload that will affect some specific organs and pathways. Most people will respond by feeling sluggish, worn down, and have less energy. This will affect our bowels, which causes imbalances that will go from constipation to diarrhea and go back and forth between the two. Since bowel movements are controlled by the brain, as well as parts of the autonomic nervous system, as well as neurotransmitters, and the parasites eat the good bacteria that help us regulate the bowel movement, this is the first effect of stress on our brain and nervous system that causes the beginning of stress overload to our cognitive processes. When we see specific neurotransmitters like norepinephrine, which affects our alertness and our attention, our motivation, our arousal and pleasure, and our rewards, it also helps constrict our blood pressure that helps maintain our blood pressure in time of stress and affects our sleep-wake cycle, our mood, and our memory. Then it affects dopamine, which allows you to feel pleasure, satisfaction, create energy and motivational drive to do things, and the feeling of accomplishment after doing something. It also affects serotonin, which affects many roles in our body like obsessions, our compulsions, influencing our learning, our memory, our happiness, as well as regulating and controlling our sleep patterns, our sexual behavior, our bowel motility, and even our hunger. The next one is GABA. The most important function of GABA is in the brain. And when GABA, which is gamma aminobutyric acid, drops too low, it's difficult for the body to relax after a stress-induced neurotransmitter release. Low GABA activity leads to anxiety, depression, insomnia, and mood disorders. And GABA is the natural brain relaxing that makes us feel good about ourselves. And then we get into the sympathetic nervous system. This system prepares the body for a fight, flight, or freeze response. The network of cells running from the brainstem down the spinal cord is in contact with the eyes, the heart, the lungs, the digestive tract, the joints, and the skin. In simple terms, 
This system responds in conjunction with one's fears and anxiety. This anxiety results in this system to become overactive, keeping us in an overly heightened state of stress, both physically and emotionally, which then affects the parasympathetic nervous system. And this is the one that relaxes and repairs our body. This system restores the body to a calm and composed state. It's supposed to prevent the body from overworking by turning off the stress reaction, allowing us to return to normal peacefulness once again. Any imbalance in the parasympathetic nervous system causes things to become underactive, and that will not allow you to restore yourself to a calm state. This leads to foot withdrawal and even isolation issues. So these parasites control all this to benefit them. And when these neurotransmitters are reduced, not only do we get slower bowels, more toxins, less detoxification abilities, but we begin to see more frustrations, irritations, lower activity of output, low self-esteem, low self-worth, the inability to fall asleep or stay asleep, and all that leads to deeper and deeper levels of depression. Once the neurotransmitters are reduced, this then begins to affect the neuroendocrine system, which is our hormone production regulation controls. The parasitical mycotoxins will keep us in a state of low-grade chronic stress, which wipes out our hormones control and responses. In previous episodes, we've discussed cortisol and DHEA as being two master hormones that affect the majority of all hormones. When the stress becomes chronic, this will divert the production of DHEA, which affects the thyroid hormones, as well as estrogen and testosterone, and switch over to cortisol to handle all the stress-related issues caused by the parasites. This, in, in a turn, will affect another master hormone called oxytocin, and it will reduce its production of th that, what that hormone does. It actually can induce anti-stress-like effects such as reduction of blood pressure and the elevated cortisol levels. Oxytocin is responsible for increasing our pain thresholds. It also promotes growth, healing, courage, and exerts an effect that stimulates various types of positive social interaction. So in conclusion, here's how parasites cause us stress. It affects or causes weakened muscle strength, the connective tissue in our lungs and joints, bone and teeth development and repair, digestion issues that affect proteins, fats, and carbohydrate metabolism, which affects blood sugar and energy production, which affects increased fat storage, therefore affects the brain and spinal cord issues, nerve-related tingling and weakness, affects our cognition, which is our memory, our recall and processing of thoughts, and it causes hormone dysregulation problems, which increases cholesterol, which causes increased inflammation, which reduces the immune system, which slows down bowel movements, which increases toxins, which increases or affects our breathing difficulties, causing kidney and bladder issues, which increases thinning of the skin, which causes more breakouts and hair loss. And the list could just go on and on. But Dr. Caleb and Dr. Luca are going to go into more details about this, but now you know how parasites can cause some major stress factors in our bodies. Now I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Luke so we can dive more into the toxicity aspect. Dr. So Luke. you just kind of uh, answered the age-old question, what's eating you? <laughs> I love it. Right? I love it. That's great. <clears throat> oh, wow. Thank you, parasite, Dr. Ben. Parasites, parasites. Yeah, trigger, <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Ben. Um, right out of the gate, I think it's important to define uh, for our discussion what a toxin is. Um, and I got this list from Dr. Brian Walsh of Metabolic Fitness in his detox course. Um, so we have toxic elements, which are heavy metals. We have naturally occurring uh, things like mold, like Dr. Craig already mentioned, aflatoxins and allergens. You have pesticides, insecticides, and herbicides. Oh, my. You have persistent organic pollutants, which these are important because these are what are called lipophilic compounds. And if you break down that word, that just means fat loving. So these compounds have an affinity for fatty tissue in the body. 
Um, and it's important to note that these can get stored in uh, adipose tissue or also the brain and uh, the nerves of the body because those are heavily made up of fat. So these are things like polychrominated compounds, things like paints, glues, and fluorescent lighting. Uh, polybrominated compounds, again, paints, uh, foam furniture padding, textiles, rugs, curtains, and more. Teflon, and then organochlorine chemicals like the insecticide DDT. And these are associated with diabetes, obesity, and endocrine disruption. Uh, next, we have volatile organic compounds, which are aromatic compounds, uh, things like gas, paints, fragrances. And these are neurotoxic. And these, you know, since they're aromatic, these tend to be inhaled. Uh, next, we have plastics, which are things like phthalates, PVC, and BPA. So now that we kind of have a working understanding of what a toxin is, we can now talk about how that correlates with stress. I'd like to emphasize the effects of toxins and toxicity on the liver here. So an accumulation of toxins, specifically lipophilic or fat-loving toxins, which get, again, stored in the fat, um, we, or we have an increased exposure to water-soluble toxins result in the liver becoming taxed or burdened trying to keep up with the demand, which is one of several ways that can lead to what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And I also want to mention the process here of what's called enterohepatic recirculation. This is a big term which basically refers to the body's ability, um, which is a natural part of detoxification. So you start with the fat-soluble toxin in the body, and again, things like a persistent organic um, uh, pollutant, and it gets converted to a water-soluble toxin through a process called phase zero, one, two, and three detoxification in the liver. Once that process occurs and we now have a water-soluble toxin, it's gonna go into the bile in the liver, and then to the gallbladder, to the small intestine, to the large intestine, and then out of the body via the stool. Enterohepatic recirculation is where instead of the toxin going out through the stool, it gets reabsorbed or recirculated from the gut back to the liver. And this process has been shown to occur for one single toxin that can occur anywhere from 14 to 17 times. So that's one toxin going through and getting recirculated anywhere from 14 to 17 times. No big deal. It's just one toxin. That's how the body's designed. But now let's add some complexity to this. This is a person who, again, has either an increased toxic load in the body or an increased chronic exposure to toxins. You can see how this might add up and become a big, hidden, silent problem for the liver to keep up with the demand. Now, back to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. If you're not familiar with that, what this is, in essence, it is inflammation and tissue change to, which occurs in the liver. And the end stage of this, if it goes unchecked over a long period of time, is fibrosis or permanent tissue change to the liver, ultimately leading to cirrhosis and death. However, again, that takes a long time to get to that stage. That's not to say there's no negative side effects, though, in the stages leading up to that fibrotic change. Mm -hmm. In other words, the progression you have, you have a healthy liver, and then now we have xenobiotic or toxic exposure or exposure to any of the other toxins that doctors, other doctors have talked about today. And then that leads to fatty changes in the liver, and then which is, again, non-alcoholic fatty liver. And then the next stage from that is non-alcoholic fatty liver with hepatitis or inflammation. And then again, the final stage is scarring or fibrotic changes, which is cirrhosis, and the end game of that is death. What are some signs and symptoms of fatty liver? Well, this is where the correlation between toxicity and stress comes in. We have anger, anxiety, fatigue, depression, cognitive dysfunction, and chemical sensitivities due to poor detoxification. And there are more, but for the intents and purposes of this discussion, I want to highlight what I just mentioned, anger, anxiety, fatigue, and depression. What if you're someone who has a really good outlook on life, 
You've got your priorities straight, you have purpose and you know it, but you wrestle with any of these things, might toxicity be the culprit? Again, it doesn't have to be a toxin as I've defined it. Literally, literally any of the other things that other doctors are talking about today can contribute to this issue. We all just needed something to talk about today, and I happen to have to toxicity. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that, keep that, that in a toxic statement. <laughs> <laughs> triggered. Um, but keep in mind that everything discussed today can contribute to this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease issue. But what typically leads to more severe cases is as I've mentioned in the, the previous episodes, the three sections on my intakes that I really look at, which have to do with social isolation, happiness, and purpose, um, amongst several others, but highlighting these. If any of these areas are tanked on a patient and they don't score super well on them, and they do in fact feel either alone, unhappy, uh, they lack purpose or belonging, and happen to have this toxicity issue and liver dysfunction, then man, that makes for a pretty gnarly case to navigate through. So you can see how this is a two-way street. Which came first, stress or toxicity? Liver dysfunction? It's imperative, and, and Dr. Kyson's going to talk about this in a future episode, of identifying the origin of stress. And it's therefore imperative that the clinician identify which, it, which issue or both are at play and determine an appropriate course of action from there. So having said that, in that hypothetical case where social isolation, unhappiness, and lacking purpose and toxicity or liver issues are at play, which do you address first? Great question. Uh, for me, when I think about the reproducibility of the liver um, and its resiliency, and we talk about the chronic level that builds up, I, I think you, at least at the later stages, it has to be somewhere in the liver, even for you to be able to process with that. It might even be significant, as we talked about in the phase zero to three detoxification, that when you look at the reticular plates of the liver, the enterocytes, if they are getting into the cyclical pattern, they move outside the liver and go into the small intestine, into the duodenum. And so that's an aspect that I go, well, how do you even get inside the liver? You know, and if we talk about the levels of digestibility, that's stage four, five, or six. Mm -hmm. So you got to work through that stomach, down that small intestine, into the interstitial space to even be able to get up inside that liver. So somewhere from that has to be at least a beginning phase. Now, yeah. de-stressing other factors is critical because that affects digestion as well. So. Which ties into what you were talking about earlier about preparing for a war and mm -hmm. kind of cleaning some of that up before you go after it. Yeah. I also think it depends on the intensity of the symptoms as well. Right. It's kind of like if your house is on fire, you're not going to rearrange the furniture. Mm -hmm. right. You got to put the fire out first uh, and then you deal with the feng shui. Yeah, but that's a lot of times. Yeah, that's a lot of times what I look at is if if your symptoms are way out of control, it's yeah. really hard to deal with the mental emotional aspect of it. You got to at least try to bring some of the symptomology down. I think with uh, our testing ability we have, we can go through and kind of figure out what the priority is. Even though you may have a multitude of issues here, and it's different from individual to individual, depending on genetics, depending on exposure, depending on toxic load, depends on the time of the month. You may have to switch things up depending on where you're at with the full moon with parasites and things like that. Sometimes it's coming in and it's shoring up our organs and our defenses. Sometimes it's bringing the load down of the attack and, and reducing that by going after the infection. Sometimes it's both. You yeah. know, we have to have a multi uh, spearheaded attack here to come after it and to really support the body. The goal, though, whenever we're dealing with anything like this is what's going to reduce the stress? Is it 
is shoring up the uh, defenses, is attacking the enemy, or is it just going through and just supporting the body in different ways? Do we need to come after the digestive tract first? Do we need to come after the liver? Do we need to come after all of them at the same time? What supports that? What works synergistically together and helps us get the best results as quick as possible? Absolutely. In theory, they're losing a war. They're losing the battles. Right. And so somehow you have to figure out how to make that work first. Bingo. So. Mm -hmm. Bingo. My answer to that was yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought of that one, so, but yeah. I thought you yeah. went a little more in depth. So, <laughs> oh, Thanks, guys. That was great input. That was great input. So I go on a you know, shameless plug here. I go uh, more in depth on the issue of toxicity uh, and specifically how it relates to obesity in a presentation that I recorded here with Jason last week. Uh, appropriately titled obesity and toxicity the hidden connection so again shameless plug be sure to tune in once that's released um, hey jason let's add that link to this <laughs> so with that uh, that's all i had for toxicity so i'd like to turn it over to dr caleb who's going to talk about the vicious cycle all right thank you dr luke so in this episode uh, we've really highlighted a lot of ways that illnesses and infections can cause stress in the body now, like we said before, we have series already on Lyme disease, parasites, and mold exposure, and we reviewed those today because those are some of the main conditions that we see regularly in our clinic, and we see how much our patients are dealing with stress because of those conditions. We also talked about toxicity because it is a key component of all three of those conditions. So as we close this episode, I'm going to take a broader look at the relationship between stress and illness. Now, I say relationship, but as we get into this, you will see it is, like everybody else has said, a cycle, and it is most definitely a vicious and dangerous cycle. So the cycle between stress and illness is at work in every patient that comes to our clinic, and for many of them, going round and round through this cycle has resulted in some pretty dynamic negative shifts in their overall health. It's kind of the merry-go-round you never want to get on. <laughs> Can you ever get off? Yeah. <laughs> yes, with help. <laughs> So when explaining this to patients, I talk about the bounce back effect. So if you think about how kids tend to bounce back after a fall and keep going, or how a boxer might bounce back to his feet after a punch knocks him down, think also of how you might get knocked down for a day or two by a cold or by the flu, but then bounce back to normal. So what happens if we can't bounce back to normal? What happens if we lose some of that bounce if our bounce gets stuck? So what happens is our view or experience of normal gets shifted in a negative way. We end up with a new normal that's a much worse normal than we had before. Yeah. And this shift is the experience of chronic illness. We see it with our patients all the time. It is something that almost all of our patients have experienced, and I know it's something that all of us doctors have experienced as well. Mm -hmm. So what causes this shift? Why do we lose our ability to fight against and bounce back from disease? This has become our immune, because our immune systems get compromised. As our immune system weakens, it becomes more difficult for our body to fight off new invaders or to keep dormant or contained invaders under control. A great example of this is the herpes varicella zoster virus, which causes chickenpox. So most of us experience chickenpox as a child, but you may not realize that even after you have recovered, this virus lingers on in the body in what could be considered a dormant state. However, later in life, that virus can be reactivated and cause the condition known as shingles. So the exact mechanisms for how the virus is reactivated hasn't been clearly identified yet, but we do know that a weakened immune system increases susceptibility. 
Now, we also know that the most common cause for a weakened immune system is stress. So Dr. Kaisen and I saw this firsthand with our mom. She developed shingles while planning and preparing for her sister's wedding, and she was definitely experiencing a lot of stress during that time. <laughs> now, for many, shingles is a short-term issue that lasts days or weeks before it resolves and they bounce back to normal. Unfortunately, mom has lingering issues in the form of post-herpetic neuralgia that still affect her even now, almost 20 years later. That was a major shift in her life, and it started with stress. So how does stress actually weaken the immune system? Well, first, let's kind of do a quick review of the autonomic or the automatic nervous system. So when we have stress, it activates the sympathetic nervous system, which, as Dr. Ben stated earlier, coordinates our fight, flight, or freeze response to fear and anxiety. It also stimulates the epinephrine, epinephrine or adrenaline hormone, norepinephrine, noradrenaline, and cortisol hormones. These are all your stress hormones or communications, neurotransmitters that are released and affect your body's preparedness to either fight, to run, or to freeze. So again, the epinephrine, epinephrine or adrenaline increases the rate and intensity of heart contractions to increase blood flow to the body and lungs. It also relaxes smooth muscle in the airways to improve breathing. So this is what we feel during an adrenaline rush when we get that big boost and we're ready to, you know, really go after that fight or really, again, run for our lives. Um, Dr. Ben also talked about norepinephrine earlier. This mainly affects blood vessels, causing them to constrict and increase blood pressure. So cortisol actually sustains the high alert mode after the adrenaline wears off. It also helps to regulate blood pressure. And I'm having a really difficult time talking today for some reason. <laughs> it's all that pressure. All that, maybe, yeah. it's a, maybe it's that seat. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, yeah I took your seat from the other times. Yeah, I blame you. <laughs> okay, so it also helps with short-term suppression of inflammation. But if you have consistent or chronic high stress levels, or high cortisol levels, this can actually lead to a weakened immune system and increased inflammation in response. So again, as the sympathetic uh, nervous system is stimulated, the parasympathetic nervous system is inhibited or decreased, and that's the system responsible for rest, digestion, immune function, and repair. So essentially what this does is it focuses the attention of the body more on blood flow, visual acuity, and muscle performance, so we have optimal reaction time and the strength to run or fight. And then we focus less on rest and repair functions like digestion and immune function. So again, this is mainly for emergency, emergency situations. It prioritizes a potential threat outside the body over a potential threat inside the body. And I think this is because external threats can often damage or kill the body faster than internal threats. So again, if we're faced with a bear, your focus isn't going to be on fighting off a cold. Or as Dr. Craig mentioned earlier, if your house is on fire, you're not going to be rearranging the furniture. You know, you got to prioritize what you're doing. So again, with chronic stress, we end up in what's called sympathetic dominance. So this is a state of being stuck in that sympathetic mode because of chronic stress or anxiety. Now, again, this is everyday life for most of us, especially here in America. The American Institute of Stress reports that 55% of Americans are stressed during the day, which is actually 20% higher than the global average. Interestingly, Greece was the highest at 59%, only 4% higher. So we are among the most stressed people in the world, in the U.S. Does that mean the other half is at night? 
their stresses at night. Maybe. <laughs> that depends on how many parasites they have. Exactly. <laughs> and where the moon's at. Yeah. yeah. So, again, you know, we talked about before about how one of the most common causes of stress is work. So, chronic stress is commonplace at work with 94% of workers reporting feeling stress at work. So, there's a lucky 6% out there somewhere that that's us. Well, we don't have stress at work. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. None. Life is good. So stress also causes 57% of U.S. respondents to feel paralyzed. And 63% of U.S. workers are ready to quit their job to avoid work-related stress. Wow. So sympathetic dominance means the fight-or-flight mechanisms are always active and the rest and repair mechanisms are always hindered. As a side note, I came across a study that showed that sympathetic control can actually inhibit the generation of effector responses in defense cells with regards to autoimmune disease. So they used some experimental models of multiple sclerosis in the study, but what I actually thought was interesting was how it presented it almost as a revelation that sympathetic control would decrease the function of the autoimmune effect because it decreases immune, right? Okay. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, so why is this surprising? <laughs> and obviously that's not really a solution either because most people that have autoimmune conditions are already in sympathetic dominance, right. and obviously that's not helping. So there's got to be some other stuff going on that we need to address. Right. So this is how you know stress can lead to illnesses. We already covered a lot today on how Illnesses can cause or increase stress, such as pain, inflammation, and toxicity. So I won't spend much time on that. But there are a couple of things I still want to highlight. So again, fear and anxiety, especially in focusing on if, when, or how you will find healing when you're dealing with illness, can definitely produce a lot of stress or that confusion of not knowing what you're dealing with. Frustration at weakness and inability to take care of yourself or others as well as you would like. Decreased sense of self-worth. You may feel like your value or like your life has less value because you are sick or in your mind may be broken. Now, I find it is more pronounced when strongly independent people have to rely on others to care for them. They really get a big hit to their self-worth. And chronic illness can also hinder a sense of purpose and fulfillment and rob people of hope or faith that things will get better. This can also cause mental stress to skyrocket when you're trying to figure out solutions and trying to figure out how to, you know, win this war when everybody else you go to either dismisses the war or they don't know how to help you. And so that's where we see a lot of our patients when they, by the time they come into us. So not only do we have those two aspects of it, but again, this is a cycle. And as we go through this process, we see that, you know, stress weakens the immune system, point where you get sick, sickness increases stress and further weakens the immune system, leading to other illnesses and so on and so forth. And this really is a compounding effect. And that's why when a lot of our patients come to us, by the time they make it to us, they have layers and layers and layers of issues. And we, you know, have to address it kind of like an onion, peeling back layers at a time. Sometimes we're lucky enough to be able to, or fortunate enough to be able to go through a few layers at a time. But a lot of times we have to just go one little bit at a time and it takes, takes a while. So this is definitely the, the vicious and dangerous cycle of stress and illness. So in closing, as you have heard in this series so far, unmanaged stress can significantly affect the trajectory of your life in a negative way. 
High levels of stress and prolonged or chronic stress will have the greatest impact, but even lower levels of stress can have a significant impact over time. Loss of focus, energy, and productivity can make it hard to move forward in life. Stress can lead to apathy and depression, which can interfere with our social connections that bring us joy, love, and purpose. The more we let stress linger and grow, the easier it is for us to shift to a victim or survival-focused mentality instead of a thriving, growth-focused mentality. It can also lead to unhealthy coping methods, illness, and poor quality of life. When we get in the cycle, it can be easy to feel like we are stuck in the mud and muck of life, but we don't have to be. If you have ever had a vehicle stuck in the mud, then you know that even an inch in the right direction can make a difference. Sometimes we fall back after that inch and you feel like that effort is wasted, but I've also seen that if we rock back and forth enough, then we can get enough momentum on that forward push to break free. It may be too difficult to do on your own at first. We are here to help in any way that we can. We want you to experience more hope, joy, peace, and comfort in your life, and we would love to partner with you on your journey to a less stressful and more enjoyable and meaningful life. Thank you for listening. Please join us again for our next episode where we discuss how stress can impact some of our key organ systems and talk about a couple specific conditions or illnesses that you may not realize is impacting our stress. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.